reading from Ezekiel chapter 1. In the thirtieth year in the fourth month on the fifth day, while I was among the exiles by the Kibar River, the heavens were opened, and I saw visions of God. On the fifth of the month, it was the fifth year of the exile of King Jehoiakim, the word of the Lord came to Ezekiel, the priest, the son of Buzi, by the Kibar River in the land of the Babylonians. There the hand of the Lord was upon him. I looked, and I saw a windstorm coming out of the north, an immense cloud with flashing lightning and surrounded by brilliant light. And then on to verse 27. I saw that from what appeared to be his waist up, he looked like glowing metal, as if full of fire, and that from there down he looked like fire, and brilliant light surrounded him, like the appearance of a rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day, so was the radiance around him. This was the appearance of the lightness of the glory of the Lord. When I saw it, I fell face down, and I heard the voice of one speaking. He said to me, Son of man, stand up on your feet, and I will speak to you. As he spoke, the Spirit came into me, and raised me to my feet, and I heard him speaking to me. I wonder, is there anybody here that is 25 years old? Anybody turning 25 years old this year? How about those who wished they were turning 25 this year? Well, I want you to imagine that you are a 25-year-old and being trained for the family business. Then suddenly your enemies invade your city and take you away to a foreign land. And that's what happened to Ezekiel five years before this passage of Scripture when the Babylonians, led by Nebuchadnezzar in 597 BC, took 3,000 Jews back to Babylon. And this is known as the first deportation. So who was Ezekiel and how did he get there? Well, the name Ezekiel means God is strong. He was training to be a priest, which was the family business. He was now 30 years of age, and if he had been in Jerusalem, he would have been ministering in the temple. And he was married to the woman who is described later on in the book as the delight of his eyes. And the reason that God had allowed his people to be taken into exile was because of their wickedness, utter disobedience, and the total dishonouring of his holy name. And we know from other Old Testament passages that the people of Israel at the time reacted in four different ways. Firstly, there were those who were blaming the sins of their parents for their predicament and were totally pessimistic about life and everything. Yet others had abandoned their God and given over to worshipping the Babylonian gods. Then there was a third group who were false optimists saying, don't worry, be happy, it'll be fine. We'll soon be back in Jerusalem and God will be nice to us again. So just continue living as you are. And then finally there were some who were truly repentant of their own sins and yet had abandoned hope that God would rescue them. And this is the first of five visions that Ezekiel has. 
and this vision is similar to that found in Revelation chapter 1, where John writes, while on exile, on Patmos. And it is also similar to that portrayed by Paul in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, when God will return again, and Jesus will come to judge the Antichrist and his followers, and to judge the nations. And when people find out that I am a Christian, some say, oh, I don't believe in a God or gods. I generally ask them, well, what kind of God don't you believe them? They then go on to describe what sort of God they don't believe in. And they are generally surprised when I agree with them that I don't believe in the kind of God who they describe as being remote, impersonal, judgmental, and delighting in the suffering he or she has probably caused anyway. And I think Ezekiel at this time was out having his picnic at the river and he may be starting to think through all the things that had occurred leaving him in exile. Possibly he was starting to question God and then he sees what appears to be a storm approaching at speed. And he just stands there looking at it approach him. And I don't know about you but if that had been me I would have been running in the opposite direction as fast as I could. But he just stands there and looks. Amazing. So what was this vision and what does it tell us today some 2,500 years later? And it's very easy with this passage to just concentrate on the cherubim angels, which is what the strange creatures are that Ezekiel describes in verse 4 to 24. And you only have to go to your local bookstore and find a plethora of books on angels and so-called angel worship. But that would be to stop at verse 24 and not proceed further. And we would then miss out on the God these angels are worshipping and obeying. However, in order to satisfy any curiosity you may have about these cherubim, for that is what these creatures are, let me explain what I think the faces mean. They each have four faces, and each face is symbolic of a characteristic of a cherubim. First, there's a human face at the front. This is to show that mankind is the pinnacle of creation, and this shows the cherubim as being intelligent. Then there's the lion face to the right, and this reflects that the lion is the king of the wild animals, and this shows the cherubim as being strong and powerful. Then there's the ox face to the left, and this shows that the ox is the best of the animals that farmers keep and reflects the fact that cherubim are strong and patient. Then there's the eagle face at the back, for the eagle is the leader among the birds of the air, which again reflects the fact that cherubim are extremely quick. So how does Ezekiel describe this vision of God? Well, his first impression upon hearing the voice from above the expanse over their heads and this voice came from a figure on the throne. Look at verse 26. And that says, Above the expanse over the heads was what looked like a throne of sapphire, and high above on the throne was figure like that of a man. And this should come as no surprise to us, because mankind is made in the image of God. And in the Old Testament, whenever God wanted to talk to man, he took on the shape of a man such as when he appeared to Moses, Moses on, on Mount Sinai in Exodus chapter 3. And this is what is called a theophany, which is an appearance of God in visible form, temporary and not necessarily physical. And Ezekiel describes what he saw in verse 28 
the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. For he knew that nobody could actually see God and live. Such is the nature of God's holiness and glory. And sometimes even within the evangelical church, we like to put God in a box. God must act only in this way or in this manner. And perhaps Ezekiel was thinking like that. Thinking that God is far away in the temple of Jerusalem and has abandoned his chosen people. And we can see from this passage that God is at least four things. That God is holy, God is universal, God is mission-minded, and that God is personal. So, first of all, God is holy. Look at verse 27. God's holiness is seen in the fire, the light, and the radiance described by Ezekiel in verse 27. Because God is holy, he is full of glory and majesty. However, it's not without some difficulty that we try to define what holiness is. Here are some of the things holiness is. Holiness is what separates God from his creation. For God alone is holy and full of glory. Exodus 15 verse 2 says, Who is like you, O God, glorious in holiness? Or Isaiah chapter 60 verse 25, To whom will you liken me, or shall I be equal, says the Holy One. And holiness is also a moral attribute of God, of purity and freedom from sin's stain. Habakkuk chapter 1 verse 13, of purer eyes than to behold evil, and cannot look upon sin, talking about God. And holiness is still more than that. It is in fact the sum of all his attributes. And perfect holiness, while to us is utterly inconceivable, has been revealed. And it was revealed in the sinless man, Jesus Christ. And God is also universal. He is universal not just in presence, but in absolute sovereign power and knowledge. In this vision of Ezekiel, you can feel the power and presence of God. And it must have been quite an amazing sight. God's presence and power are seen in the throne. And this is the climax of the vision. And it seems that it is only now that Ezekiel realises what he's looking at. And he collapses face down. We read that in verse 28. When I saw it, I fell face down, and I heard the voice of one speaking. And this shows that God is omnipresent. He's wholly present everywhere. God fills the universe in all its parts without division, writes the psalmist, Psalm 139, 7-12, and also Jeremiah 23, 23-24. God was not only in the temple in Jerusalem, as some people thought, but God was also in Babylon. And God was also omnipotent, part of his universality. God has power to do all things that are the object of his power. Luke one thirty seven tells us that with God all things are possible. He is El Shaddai, or God Almighty. Nothing is too difficult for God, reminds us Jeremiah. Jeremiah 32, verse 17 to 18. And omnipotence is an essential quality of God. If God were not an all-powerful God, then he would not be God, and he would not be worthy of worship. This is the God who created the universe with his eternal and infinite power. 
and this God bids his angels to obey, and they do. Just as he is fully present everywhere, he is also all-powerful and unlimited in power. This is the same God who parted the Red Sea in order to allow the Israelites to escape the Egyptian army. This is the God who stopped the sun during Joshua's time. This is the God who made iron swim by Elisha's hands. His power is evident in that the works, the visible works of creation are his handiwork. He made everything around us out of nothing. That is power. And not only did he create it, but he sustains it and gives it life. All things are possible with God and nothing is impossible. Of course there are things that God cannot do. For instance, he cannot do anything contrary to his own nature. He cannot, for instance, declare something finite that is infinite. And God is also omniscient, and that means that God has perfect knowledge of all things, all things actual, all things past, all things present, all things future, and all things possible. The psalmist writes in Psalm 139, O Lord, you have searched me and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. He knows all things past, present, future, and therefore he knows all that we do, which includes the remembrance of all that we have done, all that we think, and the record of those thoughts, and all that we say. God knows all things, is able to accomplish all of his most holy will. And Israel had forgotten these things about their God. He isn't confined just to the temple in Jerusalem. He's all-powerful and able to do all things according to his will. He is all-knowing and can see even the hidden sins of his people. That is why they are in exile in Babylon, because they had not given God the honour due to his name. They had sinned and actively disobeyed and rebelled against him. In the following chapters, God reveals through the visions, words and actions of Ezekiel just how wicked Israel had become. So God is holy, he's universal, and God is also mission-minded. And here in Ezekiel, God is on a mission. God came to Ezekiel to call him and use him as his spokesperson or prophet to those who were in exile. And ever since Genesis chapter 3 and the fall of man, God has been on a mission to bring and call people back to himself. That was the purpose of the nation of Israel. Israel was to be a light to all nations of the goodness and glory of God. That was the purpose when God who is outside of time and space, entered human history, taking on human flesh, and restricted himself to a human body, as and in the man we know as Jesus Christ. Jesus' whole mission was one of calling people back to life in God and with God. And all of this, God is holy, God is universal, God is mission-minded. Even more stunning than this, God is personal. God speaks and commands with authority. Look at verse 1 of chapter 2. 
he said to me, Son of man, stand up on your feet and I will speak to you. So often in the church today, God is seen and related to as a father figure or as wanting to be friends. These things are true. Make no mistake, they are true. Yet of themselves, they are not a full picture. And sometimes the stress laid on this approach tends to bring God as a person down to the same level as we are. Weak, feeble and pitiable. And as we've seen here, God is full of divine majesty and wonder. Yes, God is personal, but he is also great and almighty. And we must remember that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And Jimmy Baker, I don't know if you remember him, back in the 80s and 90s, he was the disgraced US televangelist who, when interviewed when he was in jail for fraud, was asked the question, when did you stop loving the Lord? To which he replied, I never stopped loving him, but I did stop fearing him. And that's the crux of the matter. God is holy, is universal, is mission-minded, and he is personal. So, what does all this mean to us in the 21st century? We've seen through Ezekiel's vision that God is holy, all-powerful, mission-minded and personal. We know that Israel had forgotten these things and they were now in exile because of us, because of it. But what does all this mean for us as God's people today some two and a half thousand years after Ezekiel? And when you go back to work or to college or wherever you interact with others, what does all this mean to them? Well, it means that we are to actively worship our God. And by worship, I mean living a life worthy of God, 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. Worship is not just singing songs on a Sunday, but is a whole life devoted in obedience to the God we serve. And when we became Christians, if you are a Christian here today, our sins were forgiven through Jesus' death on the cross. That is when we had our bath, as it were. That is the point when we were justified before God and we were declared his child. And having been justified already, we don't need to take another bath. But we do need the equivalent of a feet washing daily and or every time we take communion and a cleansing of our sin when we confess it before our God and repent. So before we engage in any act of service for our God, we ask him to cleanse us anew from the unconfessed sin in our life. And it's a good way to start the day and also to end the day by saying good morning or good evening to the Father, to the Son and to the Holy Spirit. And born out of this worship and obedience, we also are on a mission. We are to honour the name of this all-powerful God by living entirely for him. That is what evangelism is, and we are all called to do the work of an evangelist, just as Ezekiel was called to speak God's word to people. And what is evangelism? Evangelism is showing and telling others of God's message of reconciliation to all people of all time. 
It's not forcing people to adopt church standards, and nor is it simply a message of to join the church as a symbol of good works. This gospel says that everybody has sinned against God. Nobody can earn their reconciliation with God, and that God sent his Son, Jesus Christ, to be born, crucified and resurrected, so that salvation can be had for all people of all time, and that it is by acquiescing to God by faith in Jesus Christ alone that people are saved. But why evangelize? The prime motivation for evangelism is that of gratitude for what God has done, in that we love because he first loved us. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14, For Christ's love compels us, because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. As his servants we are to tell and live of God's reconciling message. As I said before, we are all to do the work of an evangelist, following the example of Timothy, 2 Timothy 4 verse 5. Scripture dictates several reasons for members of his church to share their faith. Jesus commands us to tell others of God's reconciling message. And in the last words of Jesus' earthly ministry, his church was commanded to be witnesses for him. And evangelism is an expression of love for God through obeying his commands. John 14 verse 15. So we worship with a life of obedience, which is an act of witness to the great God we serve and live for, telling others about him. We also teach and speak his word. The authority of the Bible is what we read and teach. For the Bible is the word of God and is the instrument of the Holy Spirit in order to bring people to faith, Ephesians 1.13, and a means of ongoing sanctification, Ephesians 5.26. Paul writes that all of it is God-breathed, 2 Timothy 3.16, and that it is inspired by God and has its origins in God. And it's not just the ideas, but also the words that are inspired by God, 1 Corinthians 2, verse 13. And the Bible is, being, is capable of being understood by all of God's people. God the Holy Spirit enlightens Christian minds so that they can understand spiritual truths. And through interacting with the Bible, the church teaches, rebukes, corrects and trains people for the purpose of righteousness. By interacting with the Bible, Christians keep from sinning, are comforted, have their minds focused on God and are sustained in a daily spiritual life. And the church also interacts with the Bible as the Bible is a link to the apostles and the prophets who are the foundations of the church. Ephesians 2 verse 20. And there are five main ways in which members of the church can interact with the Bible. Public reading of scripture was regular in Israel in the early church. And presently due to literacy, scripture can easily be read in private as well as corporately. Memorization of the Bible was commended in, order, in the words of Job 22 verse 22 in order to lay up the words of God in your heart. And by reading and memorizing the Bible, Meditating upon it helps understand the implications of life's occurrences and God's blessings. And these three interactions lead to a fourth, obedience. By obeying the Bible, the Christian learns to obey God, because it is God's authoritative word. And lastly, the teaching of the Bible receives the main emphasis in the New Testament, such as at the church's birth and Peter's address to the crowd in Acts chapter 2. 
after they were dispersed due to persecution, the apostles continued preaching and teaching. And Luke himself, throughout Acts and in his Gospel, gives 13 different words for preaching, and there are over 30 used in the entire New Testament. So what can we say in conclusion? I don't know about you, but sometimes I feel like I am in exile. And I don't mean as an Australian living in England, the mother country, although sometimes it does feel like it. We are living in a country in the UK which despite its Christian heritage, Christians are becoming increasingly marginalised by a society which decrees that all religions are none are equal and that to declare otherwise is simply arrogance and divisive. So how are we to react? When you are faced with a crisis or some trouble, how do you react? Are you like the ancient Israelites that Ezekiel was sent to preach to? Or do you trust in the holy, all-powerful, all-knowing, personal God? Or do you trust in other things? People like Richard Dawkins want God to come to town. Well, I have news for people like Richard Dawkins. God is coming to town again. But when Jesus comes again in glory to judge the living and the dead. And that's what I'll talk about next Sunday evening. For now, remember this from Ezekiel. God is coming again. You are to be holy and obedient. You are to live a life worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You are to trust fully in the God of your salvation. You are to go tell somebody. So go out from here with joy.